Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Heineken. It has been incredibly hot here in Los Angeles and nothing cools you down quite like a Heineken. Heineken original lager is made with pure malt and their famous A yeast, which makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. Pick up a pack or have it delivered today and drink responsibly. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Mulan. That's right. The Mulan remake, sort of, has made its way to Disney+. Plus. It hit over the weekend, the long Labor Day weekend. Amanda and I watched it, and um, we'd never seen Mulan before. And so we're not really Mulan experts, so we've brought on a couple of Mulan experts in the form of Jason Concepcion and Mallory Rubin, the co-hosts of Binge Mode. They'll join us in just a minute to talk about the original Mulan from 1998, this remake, some of the exciting things about it, some of the things that don't work, some of the controversy surrounding this film. But before we do that, Amanda, I've been out on vacation for a week and um, I'm back now. And in my time away on vacation, something happened. And that is that movies came back. Tenet opened in thousands of movie theaters across the country. And what happened? What happened with movies? They they kind of came back. Some people saw them and other people didn't. Yes. So Tenet made $20 million at the American box office, the North American box office this weekend, which is fine, I suppose. It's not a wow number. It's not a horrible number for Warner Brothers. It is indicative of the fact that New York and Los Angeles are not open movie theater wise. And so that accounts for a significant amount of the box office and also accounts for the fact that most theaters are operating at 25 to 50% capacity. And most people are still terrified of COVID-19. So we have this unusual circumstance where there's a massive Christopher Nolan movie that is opened in movie theaters. Let me tell you something. There's a lot to discuss with this film because you and I saw this movie. We, we did. saw it at a, we, at a drive-in sort of together side by side. Side by side, we did. We drove all the way to San Diego, or I should say, you drove. And God bless my husband, he drove and he's going to get a gold star in a later episode. Really, just like the big picture MVP of the week, Zach Barron. Uh, but our cars did park next to each other at the drive in in San Diego, uh, where we watched Tenet. We saw Tenet. I have so much to say about Tenet, a movie that I, I genuinely liked. And I think it will make for a wonderful episode of this show. But I thought we should wait. Maybe one more week. Now, it's difficult to encourage people to see this movie. And so I don't want us to take on the responsibility of saying you have to see it because it all depends on your personal feelings about going into a movie theater or going to a drive-in. In LA, you can't go to a drive-in, unfortunately, because Tenant is not showing at drive-ins. But you can go to San Diego if you want. Yeah, I was just going to say, we drove 100, was it 130 miles total-ish? Um, to see this movie. And I do not want anyone listening to this podcast to think that they need to drive 130 miles to see a movie to prove that they love movies or Christopher Nolan or AT&T stock price. Okay. Like we did this because this is our job. And also because uh, it was like 110 degrees in Los Angeles and we needed to be somewhere other than our home. I lost power immediately after I got back from San Diego. Whole different story. Been a week here in Los Angeles. So just to say, 
these were exceptional circumstances, even for us. And we did it um, because we are, think safety and health is important for us and for other people. And also because, you know, we have a movie podcast to do. But we think everyone's listening. Everyone listening's health and safety is also of extreme importance. Yes. Seeing Tenet is optional. Safety yeah. first. L- listening to the big picture episode next week about Tenet is not optional. You have to listen no matter what because Amanda <laughs> solved the movie. The movie ended and she said, I get it. I know everything that happened. I understand it fully. It is all clear to me and I'm ready to explain it. And I said, great, let's do it on the pod. That's what happened. Okay. Right? We we should actually try to do that. I mean, I just like, I have, I read like two blog posts and just, I have a lot of thoughts and like trying to recap it would be funny. But anyway. I think we should try to do it. We'll have, we'll have a blowout conversation about this very peculiar film, which I find quite interesting as a, as a text that mm-hmm. maybe might signal the end of movie going as we know it. Nevertheless, Tenet has been kind of a, a modest hit overseas. It's done pretty well where things COVID-19 wise are doing slightly better, but in the States, it's going to probably be around for a long time in movie theaters because there's just not a whole lot else opening in that respect for the month of September. So there'll be some time to get into it. And, um, and I thought, Amanda, quickly, we should just acknowledge the absolutely tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman, which happened right before I went away on vacation. And, um, you know, I think like most people who care about movies, who care about the arts, who care about contemporary culture, I was just just devastated, just gobsmacked by his passing. He's only 43 years old. And he passed away uh, from col- after a battle with colon cancer that no one knew about. And... I, it, I just think is gutting. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure you felt similarly. Yeah, to me, this is just an overwhelming sense of loss. And I, I thought, you know, there, we've, there have been a number of podcasts and lovely tributes, um, both on the Ringer Podcast Network and, you know, out in the world. And if you have not um, gotten to read Ryan Coogler in particular's uh, tribute to Chadwick Boseman, it, it's just unbelievably beautiful and heartbreaking. And so, you know, because you were gone, I thought, maybe like with a little bit of time to kind of sit through this news and you could get to a place of maybe not understanding, but maybe some of that sense of loss would kind of ebb. And for me, that is just not the case. It's, I mean, he was so young and had really had such a major breakthrough in his career, pretty late in his career in his like mid thirties. And then obviously, um, playing Black Panther and becoming the international um, sensation that he was, you you feel a real sense of loss for like his career and everything that where it could have gone. Um, and then also of what he meant to so many people. The, um, the weekend that he died, my dad sent me a video um, that was going around that was originally taken in 2018, but it's of a group of students at the Ron Clark Academy in Atlanta who are just about to see Black Panther and are just so excited and dancing and just like full of joy. And it is a reminder of what that movie meant to so many young people and particularly um, young black kids who got to see this incredible character on and screen. And you think about just the, what it means to, for them to lose that. It's really heartbreaking. Yeah. I think there's been a lot of difficulty for parents explaining what happened to to Bozeman in the last week or so. And, you know, there's, uh, it's so hard to say anything insightful about something that is so mm-hmm. awful um, in terms of Hollywood and, 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 you know, unexpected tragedy like this. So the only two examples I could think of really in the last 20 years that were even 
close to this were obviously Heath Ledger and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman's deaths. And you know, Hoffman was a little bit older and, and Ledger's was was incredibly tragic as well. But, you know, it it felt like it had been a long time since we lost someone out of the blue who was so center to our culture. And, you know, obviously he's he's best known for his work in Black Panther, but he had this incredible he had this incredible sense of what roles to choose and the power of representation. And, you know, if you look at his portrait of Thurgood Marshall or Jackie Robinson or James Brown, and even his role in this year's The Five Bloods, the Spike Lee movie, you know, he was he was after something. And it's not something as kind of simple and oversimplified as, you know, dignity or grace or greatness. There's there's a lot of complexity in a lot of the work that he does and a lot of the parts that he takes on. I think taking on a part like James Brown is is a bold act. James Brown is not a an a, a, a pure goodness. He's a pure talent, but there's so much complexity in that in his in his life and his humanity. And Bozeman just had a really keen sense for that stuff. There's not a lot of actors who are so careful and who get the opportunity, especially black actors, who get the opportunity to do this kind of work throughout their career. So I think it just makes it doubly crushing. I mean, you mentioned the the other episodes on and podcasts. I would definitely recommend um you know, the 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 watch had Reggie Ugu on of the New York Times who wrote a great profile of him a couple of years ago, which went around quite a bit um, in the aftermath of his passing. And I thought the conversation between Justin Charity and, and Micah Peters on Sound Only was really, really great and um, tapped into something that um, a lot of things I hadn't thought about with regard to what Bozeman, who Bozeman is and what he represents. And, um, you know, there's just no... <laughs> there's just no upside to this news. It just It's just awful. It's awful for everybody who knew him, for his friends and family. It's awful for what he represented to people who were fans of his. I rewatched Black Panther last night and I was just like, this is just a, a wonderful movie. And it, it certainly has complexities and flaws, but he holds the movie together. He carries the movie on his shoulders and that's a movie that had so much anticipation and so much anxiety surrounding it. And it lived up. I mean, that just never happens in mainstream culture. And so, you know, I'm just... I'm a, I'm a bit speechless about the whole thing. Yeah, I am too. I mean, it's a loss. It's a loss in terms of his career and and what he meant and what Black Panther meant to like all of its audiences. And it's a loss in terms of all of the things that he could have done. You know, I thought you said something on Twitter um, last week about how um, how exciting it would have been to see him like maybe subvert those kind of traditional like exceptional man roles that he he played. And you think about everywhere his career could have gone. And it, I mean, it, it was just so soon and, and I'm, I'm with you. I just feel like a sense of loss and at a loss. Absolutely. It's lost time for his family. It's lost, lost opportunity for those of us who loved watching him work. So, you know, pouring one out for Chadwick Boseman, a really a great artist. Okay. Now let's go to our conversation with the guys from binge mode about Mulan. Holy crap, Binge Mode is here. Mallory and Jason, hi guys. How you doing? Hello. Let's get down to business. business. To and record defeat. a pod. <laughs> okay, full Binge Mode already. Very happy to have you both here. Uh, as Great I mentioned at the top of this show, guys, um, I was a complete Mulan neophyte. And Amanda just revealed oh, to me man. that she lied to me and has in <laughs> fact seen the original Mulan. Or maybe um, you don't listen to me, like always. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe I wasn't listening. Nevertheless, you guys are here because I think of you more as Mulan experts, really. Um, Boy. Cer- certainly fans of the original film. And I'm very excited to talk to you about 
these new films. So maybe we can start just by having both of you tell us what the original Mulan kind of means to you. Mm. Mallory, what, you want to take the floor on that? Sure. Try to keep it brief. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thanks. So I was born in September 1986. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Mulan came out when I was 11 years old. I was in middle school when the OG Disney cartoon Mulan came out. And it was a very important film to me when I was a young person. I would say that it is my third OG Disney cartoon in terms of personal top five power rankings. And I probably saw it, I don't know, 25 times when I was a kid. Now, it had been then quite a long span of time after that. Really enjoyed returning to it and revisiting it in preparation for this podcast. I have a vivid, vivid, vivid memory of seeing it in the theaters when it first came out. I got to go by myself without parents with my friend, my dear friend, Allie Saperstein. Shouts to Allie. And I, I remember, remember when I said this was going to be brief? Now I'm talking about like what concessions we got. We got Skittles. I just remember so many Skittles and the euphoria of feeling that sense of freedom and empowerment. And that, of course, brings me to what else I loved about the movie. The music, which I know we'll talk about later, so I won't spend much time on here. And then the themes. I love a theme. And it was just so cool to me as a young person, and especially as a young girl who really liked a lot of things that were typically associated with boy behavior, specifically sports, things of that nature, to just watch Mulan go kick ass and do her thing. I just thought that was so cool. And it's been a very important movie to me ever since. That's my Mulan story. JC, what about you? As I have said numerous times on uh, on the big picture and various other uh, Ringer podcasts, for the year is 1997, 1998, 1998. I worked at, in a movie theater, so I've seen every theater release, <laughs> pretty much every theater release in that two-year span. And Mulan, absolutely one of those movies. You know, it's not, as an Asian American, it's not like you get a whole lot of opportunities to watch a... Um, American production of an Asian story with a primarily Asian cast. You just don't, that just doesn't happen. It's like rumble in the Bronx, but there's not even a lot of Asians in that um, besides Jackie Chan that talk. I guess. So it's like Mulan rumble in the Bronx and better luck tomorrow, you know, from that era. It's not like you have a lot of movies. So um, I, I was excited to see it on top of that. I love a musical. Absolutely love a musical. Love a musical. Yep. Big fan of the musical uh, art form. And boy, does this this one have some bangers. And it's really funny and fun. Yeah. With a truly um, inspiring story. You got Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphying it up to add that little bit of spice in there when you need it. No show. And, uh, and the action's fantastic. Uh, Ming-Na Wen of ER fame was a big fan of hers in the late 90s. Uh, I just love this movie. And I I probably saw it three or four times when it was out in theaters just to see it, not because I was like walking in and out of theaters as part of my job. 
So, so many of the things that you just identified about the original uh, notably do not appear in this new film, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about at length. Amanda, what about you? Just as you reflect on um, a, a lost youth, a misspent youth at the <laughs> certainly movies. Mis- certainly misspent. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I am two or three years older than Mallory. I never really know. But um, that's the difference between being... Uh, 11 and 13 or 14, which is mm-hmm. a big difference when you are greeting a, a Disney movie, or at least was a big difference for me. So I do remember seeing Mulan in theaters. And I, I remember everything that um, Mallory said in particular of like having grown up on the Disney princess nonsense um, for this to be a Disney movie where instead the, the young female character just gets to go do what she wants. And it makes makes decisions for herself. That was very cool. And then otherwise I ha- have to say I it just didn't stay with me the way that um the Lion King did, but I think that's because of age and also because I'm like the world's number one Elton John fan. <laughs> so let me take you guys back to the time when I saw Mulan way back on Thursday. I was uh, I was in Sedona, Arizona. <laughs> And I fired up Disney Plus and I checked out quite a charming little Disney movie. I, I don't know why this one eluded me, but um, it, is, it is really kind of at the, the end of the peak of that 90s Disney run with Beauty and yes. the Beast and The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and The Lion King and Mulan. And I feel like Mulan might be the last great, I don't, what, I don't know what age that is. Is it the silver age of Disney or I don't know how you would describe it, um, but that that moment when you had all of these incredible musical scores and musical numbers and this keen sense of childlike humor that might appeal to some adults, you know, the same way that Robin Williams might have appealed to adults as the genie. You get you get some Eddie Murphy in this movie, and uh, I dug it. I, I kind of lived up to the hype. I'm 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 a 38 year old man, and I, I probably shouldn't be watching Mulan 1998 version at this stage of my life. Nevertheless, I thought it was pretty fun. So um, come to find out. That's not what this new version is. Um, no. <laughs> this new version is, is quite a different experience. So I'm, I'm excited to hear how you guys felt about having your, your youth and or your experience working in a movie theater torn away from you the way that Disney did with this, this new version. Um, I'm not even necessarily making a value judgment here, just the fact that they've changed quite a bit. So obviously the film hit Disney Plus over the weekend, $29.99 price point, which is, um, some would say quite high. It's certainly higher than um, the number that Amanda and I speculated on six months ago and we thought things like this might start happening. We thought 1999 would be where most of these movies landed. And um, it seems like it was quite successful. The the downloads were very high for Disney Plus over the weekend, which is really the only way we know how to analyze whether or not the films had any success. And despite the fact that we found out this film's coming to Disney Plus for free in December, maybe during an incredible heat wave here on the West Coast, families really (laughs) wanted to stay in their house and watch a movie. And so it seems like it was a success. So. Mal, how do you feel about the the reimagined, relaunched, rebranded live action Mulan? How indeed. Um, I was grateful for the opportunity to watch it at my home, just in a big picture sense. In terms of the story and the reimagining specifically, you know, didn't do as much for me as the 98 animated version, certainly. I think that we'll probably return to my main critiques in more depth later on. So I'll just kind of hit them at a top level and we can we can get into them together. 
I the the lack of music is just baffling to me. It's it's such a crucial part of the heart of the original film and not just having it there, but the way that the story as is the case in any great musical is interwoven so seamlessly into the rhythms of the songs. You know, I'll make a man out of you is my favorite Disney song. Period. Amanda and I have had just rich and layered arguments about this in the past, which were captured, I believe, by a, a Ringer video crew. Like um, they're done, Mallory. <laughs> like you don't, like that isn't about to happen again on this podcast, but you keep I'm talking. Prepared. I'm prepared and I'm excited to, to revisit this with you. But I love that and it's emblematic to me of how the best OG Disney songs function, which is in a vacuum, it's just a jam. It's a banger. It holds up and I love it. But in the film, it, is such an efficient way to move the story forward. It helps with the characters bonding. It helps us understand who they are and how they're developing. And I just really miss that, obviously, reflection, another all-timer. I just, I missed all of the music so, so much. I think generally the tone and the sensibility didn't work for me as much. You know, you guys mentioned the humor of Eddie Murphy, but I would also cite the grandmother character or Cricket in his original, like literal Cricket form. There's a lot of levity and a lot of quirk and charm in the original animated version that is just uh, not even, not only not replicated, but not really approximated in the new version. And then I think the, the other biggest thing for me, listen, I love magic in a story. Frankly, there are a few things I love more than magic in a story. I was, not a fan at all of turning Mulan into a, in essence, magical superhero, because I think that it drastically undercuts the message of the story, which is that women can do the same things as men, and you don't actually have to be a magical being or fantastical in some way. The very core of who you are is good enough. That's the point. And I I, I found that change in, in particular to be... <laughs> Pretty upsetting. That's my take. Um, I agree with what Mallory said. I think that, uh, you know, there were a lot of baffling choices in this. Separating my, I, I actually had some difficulty kind of like separating myself from, uh, from my feelings about the original film while watching Sorry. this. Yeah. Um, in that sense, in a vacuum, it's fine. I, like when uh, when Mulan, uh, you know, rouses herself after uh, taking, a, you know, that throwing dagger to the chest and and uh, has the realization that, oh, I, I'll just be who I am and I will go and uh, fight this fight as myself. I found myself moved by that um, yeah, same. and a few other moments in the film. But otherwise, like I found this kind of boring a kind of boring movie. Uh, you know, I kept waiting for the music to come in uh, and take me to another level, and it never really did. And to, and I think to Mal's point, you know, um, the, the kind of magical elements, the kind of um, let's throw uh, let's throw Fox from Harry Potter in there, and why don't we add a witch for no reason with dragon hands? Uh, it just kind of, <laughs> it's like in order to, in order to be accepted as as a as a female in this society, the message seems to be 
you have to be like anointed magically by this very by these various magical beasts. And then like they'll think about it, like we'll discuss it. And and then if you really kick ass in the battle, okay, we'll talk about it. And that seems to be seems to me to kind of undercut the message. Now, now you can argue that message was kind of there in the original film. It's like Mulan is not just is not just there taking part in the battle. She's like incredible. She's like one of the best, you know, but I, I, I found that I found that kind of baffling. I guess if I had to really. To process this movie in in the context of my feelings about the previous Mulan, a disappointment. In a vacuum, it's it's fine, I guess. You know, it's fine. It's a fine action movie. Yeah. So, Amanda, this makes me think of our conversations about the Lion King and Aladdin mm-hmm. live action remakes. I would say two of the seven most deranged episodes we've ever done. Um, <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Stiff competition. Right, because because at one point you tried to say that Hamlet was bad, and at another point I just like had a breakdown because oh you said Hamlet was bad and also you like went to the bathroom and undermined your own point. And then the other time I just like started crying when I started thinking about Will Smith credit songs. So like yes. I too understand the power of Disney music. (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't thinking about those episodes because of, um, you know, our, our, our mental weakness. I was thinking of them because the thing I think we were asking for out of those movies, we sort of got with Mulan and I regret it. You know, I think mm. Aladdin and the Lion King, I thought worked a little bit too hard to retain the tone and the approach and story of the original films. And so they felt completely non-iterative. They just felt like duplicates. And I couldn't really figure out why they existed other than to make money. That was the big criticism was, why does this Lion King movie exist? Like, it is not different in any meaningful way, thematically, intellectually, creatively, aside from the fact that they used a kind of, um, a different style of animation to create the story. And they retained the songs in some places. They retained the jokes in some places, the characterizations. And I think... Mulan is kind of what happens when you don't really know what's good about your movie. And yeah. I, I couldn't really figure out I, why they made some of these choices. What, what, what do you think is, is, was, was motivating some of the, the decisions they made here? Well, I think they're trying to make a movie for everybody and no one at once. And I actually did think about both mm-hmm. Aladdin and the Lion King in that respect, because like, I think you and I know, and everyone knows why those were made, and that was for money. And hey, it worked. But we even then talked about, like, who is this for? And do children want this? And I have spent a lot of time interrogating, like, Jason Gallagher, who is a coworker of ours who has, like, a young son and consumes these. And I'm just like, but how did he respond to the sexual undertones of Aladdin? And Jacob Gallagher is like, please leave my son alone, which is the right <laughs> response, okay? But, like, and, and, but also, Sean just spent that whole episode being like, like, why does this genie have to fuck? I don't know. It's been a weird journey. But in all, all of these... All genie wanted to do was grant wishes and fuck. It was such and a weird it, choice. But like, let really the bizarre. genie fuck, okay? Like, why can't kids learn that that's a natural thing? Anyway. Genies are not real. It's not natural for a what? genie to fuck. You don't know. What well, do genies normally do? limited worldview. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But again, the point was, it's like, who is this for? 
And this, and or more to the point, does this movie know who it's for? And I, I think all of these movies are doing this thing where they're trying to be for young children and also parents and also adults who remember the original movie and also an international audience comprising billions yeah. of people, which in That's- this movie is like absolutely the case. And that pro- produces a lot of problems like textually and also certainly metatextually if, and when we talk about controversy. But like, it just, it feels divided. And once again, I'm just like... Why are, why are we doing this? I mean, and I know why. It's to make money. But who it's for and who is going to leave this being like, yes! I don't know. Yeah, I mean, we should just say, before we dig a little further in, Mulan, of course, is, is, is based on a, a Chinese folk, folk, folk tale um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a poem, The Ballad of Mulan, which is a 6th century Chinese story of a young woman who does the things that Mallory was describing, who essentially becomes a warrior and despite her gender, rises to a kind of mythic hero status. But the folktale is not necessarily a mythic story per se. There's not a lot of magic in that story, and there's not a lot of magic. There is a, a kind of sense of um, an acknowledgement of, uh, of ancestry and of spirituality in the animated film, but this new film has a lot more in common, really, with the kind of... Um, wuxia and 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 you know kind of mystical chinese movies that we've seen um really over the last i don't know what jason 50 60 years but more specifically the last 20 years they've gotten very big kind of post crouching tiger hidden dragon and the zhang yimou films and um and it really just feels like an attempt to remake hero or house of flying daggers which obviously makes sense to amanda's point about appealing to international audiences because those films are very powerful overseas but I don't know, Mal, you really, you nodded your head when you said making it for everybody and no, when the man said making it for everybody and nobody, you know, wh- where you, wh- what would you have done if you were remaking Mulan? <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't have remade it because I am so fond of the 98 version. And I should say, as, as a point of context to that question, like I actually, I have not seen a single other live action remake in this more recent Disney push, which I I don't know if I had totally even processed or realized until prepping for this pod, but, and it's not like a a fundamental refusal to engage with them or anything. I think in general, I, I love the idea of remaking and reinterpreting stories for a new generation and putting them in a present day context. Like, Jason and I probably spent uh, one eighth of the binge mode Harry Potter on talking about what the TV adaptation of Harry Potter would look like and how eager we were to see that come to fruition. I think that the the remakes that I'm most drawn to, though, still, even though they are modernized, they are adapted for a current context and framework, they understand and channel the spirit of what made the original special. So that would have, that's, it's as simple as that to me. And like, I I know that that's probably fairly reductive, but I would want the remake to understand what made the original one special. And then the specifics can, can vary as much as they need to from there. You know, obviously there are a lot of characters from the original who are um, altered or replaced in this one, you know, cricket, is a cricket literally in the original and is a human being here. Captain Lee Shang is split into two characters in the movie, etc. On and on the list goes. We can get into that. I think that, you know, something that, that Jason mentioned a minute ago, like the 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 fact that in this film, the 2020 version, Mulan makes the choice 
to reveal her identity, to reveal yeah. her gender. I, I think that was a great change. That's, to me, vastly superior to being found out in an injury tent. But I think the list of things that felt like improvements was ultimately smaller than the list of things that felt uh, of a piece and in keeping with the spirit of the core story. This movie is just riddled with some of the more iconic oh, man. Asian actors of the last 25 years. I mean, Donnie Yen and, and Jet Li and Gong Li. And Gong Li it's a- and it's, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty star studded. And they all have their moments. Uh, one of the changes uh, to Mallory's point is is a more robust emperor who is who's not just kind of uh, you know on the run and w- will somebody help me uh, defend our, our kingdom from the Huns? Um, that w- was a thrill for sure. Like anytime I see Donnie Yen on film teaching warriors how to fight, uh, I I go to the edge of my seat. Um, but it it just kind of felt uh, empty in a way, you know. To to the question you asked, uh, to, you asked Mallory about how how would you tweak this if you were going to adapt the original Mulan for twenty twenty. I think I think doing it in a more uh, grounded historical way. I love magic, but let's get rid of that stuff, you know, and and do it. And and do it in a more historical way that tells an actual dramatic story about these characters as we know them, and you know, um, and and there is just so much stuff in here that is kind of like, uh, to Amanda's point, is like something for everyone, but also not enough to satisfy anyone. You know, you've got there's uh, there's Donnie Yen and Jet Li, great, but there's not really enough um, action for them to dig into. There is these kind of um, nods at um, Game of Thrones and uh, Harry Potter kind of lore. You have like the image of like the sword going to the pool. You have these like Arthurian legends. Um, But none of it kind of gels. It none of it really hits, except for that one moment when Mulan, you know, casts off her armor and, and fights. And then it after that, it just kind of feels like this series of long battles that are kind of pointless that don't have any real like visual hook and you don't even really get a great moment when Donnie Yen or Jet Li like really show out um so in that sense I I I just found myself like so disappointed in this movie despite the really amazing star-studded cast that that we see here you know I just I uh, binged like all the Ip Man's on Netflix and it's like you this is not a fair comparison because he is the star of that those that series. But to go from that to this, you're sitting there going, "Oh, where's where's Donnie? Like, is he going to do something more than just kind of show people how to how to wield a spear and stuff?" Yeah, I I, I did the exact same thing after I watched it. I just turned on It Man on Netflix yeah. because they get you basically get one training se- segment where you yeah. see Donnie yeah. in action, and then he gets like half of a second in a fight sequence where he's he's doing his thing. And then no, no, no more Donnie and Jet, Jet Li is basically held captive throughout the movie. Yeah. So it's a very unusual use of of two incredible performers. Gong Li does get a lot more to do. Heat and, check. Real uh, heat check. I'd like for us to discuss Gong Li's performance and her character and Remarkable. the witch of it all. Um, you know, the ringer's Kate Hallowell has got a lot of feelings about whether or not the witch is um, is a lesbian. 
And I, you know, I, she certainly seems to be throwing a lot of energy in Mulan's way. And that's just, this is in keeping with the long history of, of the gender bending Disney character and like the, the fan fiction character in terms of like what we want out of this figure. And I often feel like this is born out of, um, a desire for more from the character, like a it, like, yeah. like lack of characterization where you like project your desires for what you wish they would have done because it doesn't totally live up to exactly what you wanted out of them. Um, Amanda, are you've been, you were pro witch on the bad boys for life podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, you- that was fun. That was a good, here's the thing. I was just like, Oh, you made a Maleficent character and you're setting up your Maleficent spinoff. I couldn't watch any of these changes like without the Disney specter around it. And I just kind of saw them as like star Warsing it a bit and Disney you know, Maleficenting a bit and making way for the next action figures and the, the spinoffs and like the whole universe. And I, you know, so I was like, okay, I see what you're setting up and, or you're going to try to, if this works out and I don't really have an opinion on it. I will also confess that at this point I was like, this wasn't in the real movie. Right. Um, so it's a lot. I, I, I liked that there was another woman in the, in the, in the film in a interesting way, because otherwise it can be like Mulan and a lot of men. I think adding the sister was also a nice choice though. Again, you wish they had developed it more as you wish they would develop most things, but yeah, I just saw it as another franchise. Can I ask a question quickly about that point about, you know, multiple women and mm-hmm. theoretically prominent roles in the film, how, how actualized that prominence is, is a different matter. To me, the counterpoint to that was that the witch had to die for Mulan to ultimate, ultimately advance to the next stage of prominence in the story. And it was like, there was a, there can only be one recognized strong woman element to that that I just, I, I did not enjoy. I could know I, I liked certain aspects of the, the witch character and performance in general. I can I confess that until you just said the witch died, I had forgotten that. Because I spent a lot of time like being like, oh, but now Take she's a bird. In bird but form. now she's a bird, but now she's a witch. Also, my husband came in at some point and started watching it. And so I had like every time the bird showed up on the screen, I was like, that's the witch. But then it would like they would cut. And so you couldn't see the bird. And he's like, which bird? So, you know, I didn't invest in the character is the is the short answer to your question. Yeah, there's some there's some confusing aerial aspects to this movie. Obviously, Mushu had a kind of a, a flying energy in the original film too, mm-hmm. and now in this film, Mushu has been replaced by a witch and also a phoenix, which may or may not be a literal phoenix or a metaphorical phoenix, which I don't think was necessarily fully clarified for us as we were watching the all. movie. Like, I don't know, Mal, you, Mal, you got I, the like, what's going on here, face. I was well, very, well, just yeah, to go, break go in ahead, for Jack, a second. Yeah. I, I was, uh, I was confused as to what the advantage of shape shifting for the witch was, other than she's very killable in that form. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good point. It's a good logic point. <laughs> like, why? Why are we doing it if we're extremely killable in that body? Why? Why do it? Um, that confused me. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. No, that's a that's a good point. I think with the the change of Mushu into the Phoenix, I 
I found myself longing for Mushu's presence, certainly. And then yeah. in the course of reading the internet, came to the deduction that I was maybe in the minority there, which I was a little surprised by. And I'm curious to ask for your opinions on that because I, you know, I don't want to straw man and uh, imply that everybody has the same opinion. I think the opinions overall on Mulan and all of the specific aspects of the Mulan remake probably vary greatly person to person. I, especially because there was this introduction of the supernatural and so many other aspects of the story, it didn't seem like a leap for me that the animals, that the ancestors, that any magical creature would have been speaking and more fully incorporated into the story rather than just appearing occasionally. I don't think that that would have taken me out of it or felt in in any way strange, but that was obviously not the choice that they made. So the Phoenix I thought was lovely. Jason already mentioned Fox, strong Fox vibes, certainly. But I longed for that guidance, the 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 mentorship and the friendship that developed between Mushu and Milan, the the importance of having not only a confidant, but another figure who is helping Mulan to chart a course, because I think that that's one of the things that can be difficult to navigate in a story that is ultimately about a certain individualistic spirit and the desire and ability ultimately to say, this is who I am and this is what I want to do. And that just has to be good enough for you, which is obviously awesome, right? But the way to subtly incorporate the reminder that it's okay to also let other people help you. I think that's important. And so obviously the Phoenix was still there as a guide, but I, I longed for that more fully realized relationship, I think. That's a great, I think that's a great note. The, I think one of the, pri- you've, we've hit on one of the primary differences between uh, the 1998 version of the story and the 2020 version of the story, which is um, Mulan in this tale is guided by the past, is guided by the words of her family and and the direction that her family throughout you know, they're going back through their ancestors has is giving her through the the writing on the sword. There's no person that comes in and says and, and gives her any kind of advice or any kind of light in the darkness or any kind of direction slight that though that may be. It's primarily a reading of the past for her. And I think that's a big difference between this film and the previous film. And I mean, I, I guess you would wonder. Clearly, it seems like a very conscious decision to take all these kind of like other figures that had guided Mulan in the previous movie, turn them into symbols who don't really speak or instruct that much, and then have the really overt instructions come from this like deep ancestral well. Today's episode is brought to you by Heineken. Heineken would like to remind you it's time for seasonal beers again. That's right, if you thought a cold, crisp summer Heineken was something, just wait until you taste the fall Heineken lineup. Is it a new product? No, just the same great tasting lager that's perfect for any season. Me, I love to sit in front of my gigantic television and watch movies while drinking a crisp, cold Heineken. Heineken's original lager is made with pure malt and our famous A yeast, which makes Heineken an all-season, all-the-time kind of beer. So pick up a pack or get it delivered, whatever your style, and drink responsibly. The movie I thought of the most while watching this movie is The Last Jedi. And in some sense, the entire 
kind of new Skywalker trilogy. And I think I think that's not a good influence. I do love The Last Jedi, but I do think the desire to make Mulan more like a Rey type figure, kind of to Jason's point here about, you know, whether or not like you need a kind of direct eye to eye inspiration to be as great as you can be. Um, and your relationship to your past and your relationship to history and kind of what motivates greatness. And, you know, Mallory, we've talked on this show about kind of how the rise of Skywalker kind of screwed up all the expectations that we had. And you guys, of course, talked about it a lot. Well, I on, did it. On, on binge mode. And I can, I, I just, it, it does. And I, it just seemed like an odd note to make Mulan more of a ray than a Mulan because we already knew what we, we already knew what she was. We already knew what the point of that story was. And um, it was individuated in a way that was effective. And so, you know, as much as I love the last Jedi and as many problems as I have with the other two films in that, in that trilogy, um, I'm curious to see now if this is going to end up being like a, an important text for filmmakers. Now, maybe that's just the Disney influence in general and, you know, they're all keeping it in the family, or maybe there's an international influence that goes along with that. But it just struck me as an as a strange, strange parallel. Um, Amanda, would would you have taken the magic out of this movie? Probably, yes. You know, I thought Mallory earlier and then Kate Hallowell in the the Ringer's exit survey put it best, which is that the appeal of Mulan was that she was a regular girl and she wanted to do you know, something other than what regular girls are normally expected to do. And then with the help of her friends and people who believe in her, as Mallory points out, she goes and does it. And there's not magic and there's not some, like, she is not like the chosen one in that sort of Star Wars, Harry Potter, you know, Joseph Campbell-y way. She's just like a, a person who who lives up to her own potential and decides to do it. And there is like, I think there's real power in any character doing that. And especially like a young woman, I'm very I pro that you don't see it that much, I, but I, I don't, I wouldn't say. So in that sense, the, the magic takes away from that. But like, I don't know. A lot of people like magic in movies. I honestly think that that's why they did this. People were like, Oh, well, most of the time magic works. So let's just give her, magic powers and it doesn't really seem like they thought through the implications past that I think to the Star Wars point I, I, I'm of two minds at once and it, it, it's it's a little hard to navigate my, my own thoughts about this but I'll try I think that there's something actually kind of cool about the fact that cinematic influence is cyclical so when, when George Lucas is crafting Star Wars, there are so many things, places, people, ideas across decades and, and eras of cinema and also across cultures that influenced him. Obviously, Joseph Campbell, as mentioned a moment ago, Seven Samurai, Hidden Fortress. Also, quite clearly the idea of the force, this energy that connects all things, that's chi. The influence seems very apparent, right? So to then build this story's influence in part on how Star Wars manifests that, I think is interesting. It's everything we've already talked about that uh, works less well. You know, we don't have to relitigate the Last Jedi debate here. I'm a huge fan of that movie and remain so. And only feel more strongly in favor of it after everything that happened with the final film. 
the thing that appealed to me so much about it was the idea of Ray being no one coming from nowhere, not actually needing that magical name, the skeleton key of a certain name or lineage that unlocked the path for you. Now, the role that family plays in both the 98 Mulan and this version of Mulan is is central. You know, what are the inscriptions on the sword that Jason mentioned, loyal, brave, true, and then the additional inscription ends up being about this commitment to family. I I think, again, that there's something about that that's quite nice, finding a way to discover and then realize who you are, what you want to be, and how you want to live your life while also trying to protect and care for the people you love and the people who helps you live your life. The role of family is also very central to the original story. And I think the question there of what we're calling magic and what is intended to be a representation of something that's central to a given culture is just maybe not always handled in nimble or nuanced enough fashion. We're we're being a little hard on Mulan. Was there anything in the film that you guys really liked? <laughs> Again, I th- I thought the I thought the 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 dearmoring scene really hit me. That's about it. Again, I think that we're being hard on it. I'm being hard on it anyway in in uh, in the context of loving the previous film. Um but it wasn't a, like aggressively terrible. It was just fine. I'm just okay. You want to heat this podcast up a little? You ready? Do it. I I was so pleased that the music was gone. I like, I'm sorry, but I think the music in the original Mulan is like terrible. I like, you, you have been sold a false bill of goods. It's so boring. It's so plotting and boring. Yeah. And plot focused and the, like the melodies are lesser. Like, I mean, I like, you guys were talking so much about Reflection. I got eight emails about Christina Aguilera's cover of Reflection before Mulan came out. And I was like, oh my God, finally, <laughs> it's going to be Reflection. And I was just like, this is just like an average-ass ballad about finding yourself. Okay, whatever. It's not Elton John. I can tell you that. And well, I did not, not miss fair. the Come songs. A bit. Well, let's just be honest. I didn't miss the songs. I was, this, was like, this is fine with me. Chef Dobbins is here to this. cook. Yeah, I, I there, there's a there's a so much of of okay. Let me let me cite one specific lyric to prove my point. Right. I think there's a lot okay. of um, Amanda's um, historically. I love it when people just like cite lyrics to me. So I, I know great. I know you you enjoy this. <laughs> you really you love this. You know I think this really speaks to Amanda's preferred managerial style, and so I'd like to mm-hmm. reference it for the yeah. for the, our textual consideration here. This is from "I'll Make a Man Out of You," the the song that is. Really the best song in the film. Heed my every order and you might survive. Okay. <laughs> I just feel like that that speaks to you. And you're sure. Approach. I mean, I think that's so. great. I also agree with you that I'll Make a Man Out of You is the best song in what are yeah. otherwise a collection of unmemorable songs. Oh, and it's on. fine. And I, like I will say, we've had this war before. And I think to some yeah. extent, it is what people want out of a Disney song that differs. And, you know, that is definitely... Uh, plot focused and cute and expositional and i am looking for you know just all-time pop songs crafted by one of the greatest artists of the 20th and 21st century but that's okay your your mileage by that, I may mean, vary by, by that measure everything's coming up uh you know silver and bronze metal compared to the lion king is that not so 
Talk to yes. Mallory. You know, I mean, a whole new world, <laughs> a whole new world absolutely crushes. Yeah, banger. I just but can't it's wait like to it's amazing, amazing. Yeah. I know, but like that, that is also to me, that is the I'll make a man out of you out of the Disney song. Cause even you can pace out where in the Disney movie exactly. the certain song comes where the kid is or like, I just have to like learn some things. And this is the peppy song that all the children get very excited about. But Mallory, you're a grown up now. Okay. And if we had but to sit I still through have this, the, the, I still have a child within. <laughs> I know, but if we had to sit through like a, a half grown up movie, which is like, again, the problem with this is that it's made for grown ups, but also made for children. And sometimes you can either like, you can either have the childlike spirit or you can just do an adult thing, but this halfway between purgatory, it never works out. But you can't ask a grown up to be like, yeah, time for a, a peppy song with a, a dragon and a cricket about like, <laughs> I don't know. How dare you? Oh, I, 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 I can, and that that specifically is the 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 brew that is that is so special is that all of those things can exist in the same like eighty two minute span for the cartoon movies, and it's flawless. It all works together. There's such harmony not only in each song but across that constellation of musical offerings. My, top five Disney songs, my personal list. Number one, I'll make a man out of you. Number two, I just can't wow. wait to be king. Number three, part of your world. Just a. Uh, a classic. Part of your world is also in my top five. Okay. Because that's amazing. I think but that's that, the only one we have in common. Actually, we might yeah, have two in common. But here's the thing because part of your world both does the exposition and it puts you in a time and place, but it communicates like a much broader yearning that yes. people of all ages can relate it's to. It's deeply okay? sad. It's deeply yeah. sad. Something there from Beauty and the Beast. Incredible. Catchy. It's good. It's and like the fifth world. best Beauty and the Beast song, but that's fine. Listen, I love a B, a B side jam, you know? I think I think part of what we're kind of like talking around in the like in terms of the 2020 version of Mulan is like a real an ingredient that was missing besides all the other ingredients that, that were missing is, <laughs> is this experience of like lightness of of uh -huh. something to kind of um, balance out this, uh, you know, uh, swords in the desert, in the in the you know, in the Western Chinese wasteland kind of battle, medieval battle feel. Some kind of uh, comedic flair, something that would um, allow us to laugh a little bit. It just was completely missing. Now, whether the, the songs certainly do that uh, in the original Mulan, as well as the characters who often uh, sing those songs, but th there's just nothing of that here. There's nothing of that. You know, and instead the stuff that takes its place is like these, long conversation scenes between a witch and Mulan where it's, uh, I have no idea what, what energy is happening here. Um, and, and that's primarily the thing that I, I found missing, whether you, whether you like the songs of the original Mulan or not, that kind of, that kind of uplifting energy, um, is just sorely lacking in this film. Yeah. I, not that anybody asked, but my, all of my favorite sure. Disney songs are from, um, Robin Hood. They're all written by Roger Miller. They're all bangers. Udulali, first and foremost. Oh, that's yeah, my dad, that's a good one. Big dad, big dad opinion. Um, but to Jason's point, uh, I completely agree. There's just there's a kind of a humorlessness to this movie, and that is it didn't have to be this way. It's an interesting thing. It's this movie's directed by Nikki Caro, who we haven't talked about at all, who is a New Zealand filmmaker who's made some good films. Um, Whale Rider kind of put her on the map. Uh, and she made a film with Charlize Theron um, in the 2000s called North Country. 
And all of her films have one thing in common, which is they're kind of humorless. They're very earnest, dramatic stories that center women in the middle of the frame. And so in some ways, she's a logical pick for this movie. In other ways, it just kind of feels like she's perhaps tonally not right and the script is not totally right for capturing what people love about the original. And, you know, usually there's some corporate machinations and then there's some creative choices and those two things together tend to give us the results that we get in a movie like this. But I do find it to be fascinating because this movie has become a bit of a lightning rod in a couple of ways. We mentioned, obviously, that it's going to Disney+. And that means that a lot of people are going to see it at home and it's going to have a pretty wide international audience. Um, but also the circumstances under the under which the film were made have come under fire in the last couple of days. Uh, particularly the fact that um, where this film was shot and how it was shot, uh, you know, it was filmed in uh, Xinjiang, the region in China where uh, Muslims have been detained in mass internment camps. And it's really become a, a magnet for for anger over the Chinese Communist Party promoting nationalism and, and ethnic Han chauvinism. And I, mean, I don't know if irony is the right word for that, but given the context of the, the original story of Mulan, it seems like the Disney has whether wandered unknowingly or perhaps made a decision production-wise to just forge ahead despite what's happening in, in, that, uh, in that area of China that they're in a little bit of trouble. And then additionally... Yifei Lu, who is the star of this movie, who we haven't really talked about very much, last year, almost a year ago, August 2019, um, triggered the hashtag ban Mulan movement when she tweeted support for Hong Kong police and used the phrase, you can beat me up now, referring to the fact that people would not agree with her in showing support for the HK police. So this movie, while also while being somewhat unsatisfying for fans of Mulan, perhaps, is just a real tempest in a teapot and kind of underscores a lot of the problems with doing, I think, actually the thing, Amanda, that you're identifying, which is trying to make a movie for everyone and an attempt to kind of authenticate the experience in some way and tell a Chinese tale. They've also kind of driven over some of the, the complexities. I, Jason, um, I mean, we saw a version of this conversation in the NBA last year when Daryl Morey tweeted, and this feels like, in a way, a kind of a similarly Disney-connected cultural... Um, I don't know, it's a Michigas. I don't know, how do you, what do you think of everything that's been going on with the movie? I think that all of it is, and including the, the, um, the kind of controversies around uh, Daryl Morey's tweet and the, and the NBA's engagement with China is all kind of the symptom of a larger thing, which is, you know, like after... Uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it, it really felt like, okay, capitalism won. And not only did it win, it's the necessary ingredient for democracy, right? So, uh, you know, a very bipartisan idea uh, from Bill Clinton to George W. was this idea that if we engage economically with China, we will liberalize them through our influence, right? And I think what we're seeing now in the NBA and with the kind of wider discourse around this film uh, and in other many other places is maybe that influence is not going in the direction that we always think it should or that we thought it would. Maybe it's going the other direction. Um, or maybe this is all just kind of turbulence as these ideas crash against each other. It's difficult to say, but I think kind of uh, analyzing these uh, these conversations in the light of the wider kind of global 
political context, I think is pretty necessary. You know, these are these are um, whether Chinese style capitalism is um, compatible with like Western liberal ideas that are also enmeshed in our economic system is kind of like an experiment that is ongoing at this particular time. Yeah, I mean, Amanda, here's what this strikes me as. Um, Kind of regardless of your opinion specifically of the Ban Mulan movement or anything else surrounding it, it feels like a a serious reflection of what Jason is underlining, which is the desire to maximize reach and to find as many people as possible. There are more people in China than there are in any other nation in the world. And so that is a rich space to discover fandom. And in an attempt to find that fandom, you have to understand and respect the complexity of the culture that you are attempting to essentially invade, invade with your product. And the Chinese box office, I've written about this in the past, is incredibly important to the American movie industry. And in attempting to tell particularly a Chinese story, you of course want to capture the Chinese box office. But in doing so, and in, in, in capturing that story and what could be deemed quote unquote authentic, so many pitfalls here. Yes. And this one in particular was just, it was targeted at the Chinese box office and in so much of the discussion of like, when is Mulan going to come out and how will they release it? And will it go to theaters or whatever? Like the ability for this movie to open in China was central to it because it's a part of their business plan. And that is what this is. At the end of the day, it's Disney trying to make a ton of money. And they've realized that making a lot of this money in China is, um, Well, it's what they're trying to do with this. And, you know, it's what Jason said. It it becomes like incredibly complicated. And we have thought that, you know, capitalism thinks that there's just like one market that can solve it all. And I think this movie proves in its content and in its release that there are a lot of different markets and that like it is not one size fits all and that it becomes intensely complicated. And perhaps they were not uh, prepared for all of those complications. Mal, any thoughts on the ongoing crisis around this movie? I think not prepared or didn't care, you know? Yeah. And yeah. that's obviously yeah. upsetting to to think about. I mean, a, a overt thank you is pretty appalling. And I, you know, I agree with Jason and what, and what everyone has said about the the imperative nature of acknowledging that and reconciling that. I mean, I think that the global nature of movie making and cultural consumption in general does not free people from the need to interrogate how these things are made. It's quite it's quite the opposite. So it's important to talk about. So can we just talk a little bit about um, the forthcoming Disney live action animation films, mm. the, 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 the new versions of this that we're going to get? Because I'm, I'm just kind of curious... We're not, we're not going to be able to solve the problem of globalization and everything that um, that Bill Clinton wrought in the 90s. That's just not going to happen here on the podcast. But what we can do is make fun of some Disney movies. That's something that we're well-suited to here on the show. Um, coming next spring is Cruella, which is a... <laughs> oh, this yeah. is actually the, the third live-action 101 Dalmatians movie, but this is, I think, in a new iteration starring Emma Stone. Um, I'm into Emma Stone, this. Who, <laughs> she was she was the winner of the 35 under 35 episode of the big picture earlier this year 
And um, this is her next project. And uh, let me just say, this movie's got six screenwriters. Um, one of which okay. is Jez Butterworth, who might be the best screenwriter in America. The other is Tony McNamara, creator of The Favorite and The Great. Uh, in oh addition God. to Aileen Brosh McKenna, the, the famed... Queen. Uh, a legend yes, in the space. Yeah. Um, movie's directed by Craig Gillespie, who most recently made I, Tanya. So... <laughs> Um, there's a lot going on here with Cruella. You guys in or out on Cruella? After that, I'm in. Big Emma Stone fan, huge Emma Stone fan. This, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, who's this for is my, is my reaction. Who's it, who's it for? Who's been out there being like, you know what? We need, we need more of that dog abusing lady. Let's get her. Let's do. Let, here's the logline for this film, in case you're, um, in case you're wondering. Set in 1970s London, young fashion designer Cruella Deville becomes obsessed with dogs' skins, especially Dalmatians, until she eventually becomes a ruthless and terrifying legend. Well, that's upsetting. <laughs> what? <laughs> How is that the movie? This is it's a, it's an origin story for a woman who loves dog skins. I want more for Emma Stone. I, yeah. I can't believe that this is happening. I also still just, I love Emma Stone so much, but like you just rigged that 35 under 35 movie draft. And I'm just now reflecting on this fact. Then we like, we could have had some discussions just based on what you just described. Anyway. No, it's, it's to get away quickly from the hot button issue of uh, relitigating the 35 under 35. <laughs> I, it, it just hit me that maybe this is for uh, the next generation of Rocky Horror Picture Show people just going off the off the publicity photos of Emma Stone as Cruella. I'm getting some very strong Rocky Horror vibes from it. Maybe the, there's some kind of like camp experience that they're that they're shooting for, but it's honestly confusing. I'm I confused. Don't know if this I don't know if this has music. She makes clothes out of dogs. Is that what I'm? Is that what yep. I'm hearing? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, it's, it's like a Silence of the Lambs prequel as well. You know, she's just (laughs) all about human skin, dog skin. Uh, okay. A couple more films that are coming soon. Uh, these are probably more in 2022, 2023. The Little Mermaid has been much discussed, Mm -hmm. uh, directed by Rob Marshall, who most recently brought us Mary Poppins Returns. Not really my favorite film. Um, scripted by Jane Goldman, who, um, is a very respected screenwriter who I think wrote a not picked up Game of Thrones prequel, one of the mm-hmm. not pursued prequels. Um, and she's written some X-Men films and Kingsman films. Um, and this remake is notable because, well, for a few reasons, but I think specifically because Halle Bailey has been cast as Ariel in this movie. And I also did not realize this, but apparently Melissa McCarthy is playing Ursula. Um, oh, which is like almost too perfect. Um, Mal, you in or out on this? Well, you know, again, I said earlier that I hadn't seen a single one of these live action remakes until Mulan, so I don't want to overstate my enthusiasm or likelihood for engaging with them, but uh, just hearing you lay out the the, the key details, I'm compelled. <laughs> okay, if you're it. not, Jason, if you're not sold yet, how about this? Javier Bardem is playing King Triton. Yeah, this is... A- Here's wow. the thing: Are there going to be the songs? Who's Sebastian? Because otherwise, I what think about Flounder. Because, Sebastian because otherwise, is played by David Diggs. Oh wow! Wait, are you making this up? No, 
So okay. there must be I'm, the. So I'm I'm getting here that the songs may be there. If you're going to cast a V Diggs, maybe we're going to get the songs. I, I I hope we do because I think we the the trap that we could potentially fall into with a live action Little Mermaid that you were such that you were describing is that kind of Aladdin uh, weirdly horny trap. You know, it's there in the text, the horniness mm-hmm. of the Little Mermaid story. Right. And so I am I'm hoping we avoid that particular pitfall with the live action version of this. Can I ask a quick question? Not to open up this big pick debate again, but yeah. why is the horniness a bad thing? Thank you. It's kind I, of a I, pillar of the Disney experience. To, yeah. Isn't it? That's again, that's the word I just sex think, literally flashes across the screen in the original Lion King. Yeah, that's I unfortunate. Mean, yeah. Agreed. But again, there's a there's a certain kind of uh there's I don't want to say subtlety, but there's a sub there's a subtextual nature of the horniness that c- c- contributes to the general fun and energy. There's and a song attitude called "Can You thing. Feel the Love Tonight," and it plays while the lions fuck in a lagoon. Mm-hmm. Is that subtle? Yeah. Again, but it's classy because yes. it's Elton John. <laughs> Again, won an Oscar correct. for that. Listen, if there's anybody, <laughs> if there's anybody that knows how to put uh, put a uh, turn sex into subtext, it's Elton John's entire career. Um, so I think that, you know, the thing that made the live action Aladdin so weirdly off-putting was that the sex was just on main. It was just out okay. there. Right. I, but- l- 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 <laughs> hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> the, the whole, like, the sex part is good is not good. The, 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 the sex that found its way into Disney films is something that old white men who animated these films and frequently wrote them attempted to insert into the films unknowingly to subvert their life's work. That is where most of that comes from. Now, you could say, can you feel the love tonight is a love story and that that is a reflection of that. But the SEX that you're describing in Smoke, Mal, that was not above board. No, of course not. It's like a famous (laughs) not above board movie making thing, right? But I'm talking more about the actual text, not the uh, gross wink wink perversion and subversion. Like the parts of the story that are about understanding your yearnings, that's kind of like classic coming of age material. Now, I again have not seen the live action Aladdin, so I don't actually know what you guys are talking about. I'm just saying more generally that a sexual awakening is actually part of a coming of age story. I agree with this, but the the change that they need to make in The Little Mermaid is not getting rid of the sex. What's wrong with you, Jason? I mean, it's the whole end. But like, they need to change the motivation. It's the presentation Because the little, well, The Little Mermaid is ultimately like about Ariel just like giving up her voice and many other things in order to be able to fuck a dude, which is like not a lesson that we should be teaching any young person of any gender or sexual preference at any point, okay? Like you should get to want to make a life for yourself and then at the end also you get to have sex because sex can be a positive experience if done for the right reasons, which is what we need to be teaching children. So don't like take the fun out, but actually maybe change the motivation because by the way, The Little Mermaid is very screwed up and I love it. Um, I just wanted to share a couple of more casting decisions around The Little Mermaid because this is really just the most interesting movie of all time. Um, Apparently, Aquafina is playing Scuttle, the diving bird, and Mm. um, Jacob Jacob Tremblay will be portraying Flounder. What? Uh, (laughs) So, I think David Diggs, Jacob Tremblay, and Aquafina are just voices. But I do think that Javier Bardem will be appearing in his Javier Bardem form as Triton, which awesome. also let's just 
I, I need to give you the description of, of King Triton because I'm not sure I really <laughs> thought about him in this way. Uh, Ariel's overprotective father and the king of Atlantica who is xenophobic towards humans. Xenophobic. Extraordinary. The Little Mermaid is a rich text. There are a couple of other Disney live action movies coming up, including Peter Pan and Wendy from David Lowry, who has previously made a live action remake, uh, Pete's Dragon. But I, I think Cruella, Cruella and the Little Mermaid are probably the, the most likely to come soon. And um, I'm kind of unnerved by both of them. They both seem really weird, if I'm being totally honest. Uh, any any closing thoughts on on the state of Disney, Mulan, or otherwise? I'll just say I missed Shang. I understand. You know, I, I, I Jason Reed, a producer on the film, has just said outright that it was a decision made uh, taking the Me Too era into account, not thinking that it was appropriate to have the commanding officer and Mulan develop romantic attachment to each other. Of course, that makes sense, dividing Shang into two characters. You have Donnie Yen's commander character and then Hong Hoi, where the attraction develops with a peer instead of a commanding officer. That that makes sense. <laughs> but Shang is a, a, a beloved character. I, 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 you know, the aspect of the Shang Mulan initial attraction as it develops in the 98 film and Shang standing as a bisexual character is a very important thing to a lot of people. And I, we haven't really talked about Shang yet, so just wanted to mention him. No Shang thoughts for many of you? I, you know, one thing that I felt rewatching the 1998, with all respect to Shang, um, like I always get a little bummed down in stories like this when the girl gets to go do whatever she wants and be whoever she wants to be, but like, oh, there's still a wedding at the end. Like, you mm-hmm. know, I'm a little bit like, mm-hmm. let's go full. Why do we need a love interest? Let's just let her. And that said is the world's number one romantic comedy fan. So I I would have preferred, I understand that uh, Shang is an important character to a lot of people, but I would have preferred that they just take out the love interest altogether. This is also what made me mad in Rise of Skywalker. Well, one of many things that made me mad in Rise of Skywalker. It's like, why do we have to throw this in at the end just to put girls back in the romantic box? Um, but just my take. JC, any closing thoughts? Yeah, my closing thoughts I, I would be that um, in the original versions of these movies the music plays an important emotional and uh and storytelling role and when you lose that when you take out the music those roles still have to be filled by something and let's do it more successfully than uh than mulan did next time that's all should we sing together you guys want to go out on a song you're unsuited (laughs) for the rage of remakes. No, okay. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> Matt, Mal, you were. That was very off key. I'm. I'm yeah. I really. I, I really sing. appreciate you showing your I'm, your I'm true singing voice of here. Singing and never have been. Uh, but I love music, and I love the way music makes me feel. Amanda, I think it'd be useful if we recorded at least one episode in the style of a musical, where you know we map out okay. the whole episode, we do the outline, and then just in the middle of one of the sections, we just start singing what's written down on the outline. Are you game? Sure. Yes. Okay. And then at the end, we can do the Will Smith credits remix. Yes, that sounds with perfect. DJ Khaled. You guys, you don't understand at the end of Aladdin, he just does friend like me, but with DJ Khaled, like as a rap, I like you have to watch it. 
Rest assured, no you do not cares. have to watch it. No I, I promise cares. you. That's so crazy. <laughs> okay, whatever. Trying to relate. Love of music. Mallory, Jason, Amanda, thank you guys so much for thank you. revealing your youth and talking about Mulan today. Thanks for having us. Thank you again to Jason, Mallory, and Amanda. Stay tuned to The Big Picture later this week where we will be breaking down in all its forms the new film from Charlie Kaufman. It's called I'm Thinking of Ending Things and it's on Netflix. Give that one a watch if you're interested before listening to the pod and see you then.